Now boarding the Aim High Podcast. Aviation made easy. With your hosts, Erica Wiggins and Mark Patey. The Aim High Podcast. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Aim underscore High. And now, the CFI for Aim High. And the world record holder for fastest flight across the United States in a single-engine aircraft, Erica Wiggins and Mark Patey. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Aim High podcast. Erica, hi. Hello. We have a great guest today. Yes, we do. This is going to be a fun podcast. This is all about fun and games. I'm not going to get on my CFI pedestal today. And, and we're going to talk about getting dirty as pilots <laughs> and, and playing in the dirt. Wally. A favorite of mine. There's nothing funner than getting a little dirty. That's why, yeah. Dirty plane, dirty tires. Dirty plane and dirty tires. Uh, Wally, give us your full name and your your aircraft of choice to fly. Well, I'm Wallace A. Brown Jr., and I have a. A junior. You threw the junior on there. I had to because there's two of us in the world. I had to warn everybody. (laughs) Yeah. So I have a. a 1957 182 Alpha straight tail fastback, and I've got uh, 850s all the way around on it, and that's what I get in and the out of the bigger tires. Way. It's compensating for something. <laughs> it looks pretty dang tough. It does look tough. I'm just saying it's compensation. <laughs> bigger tires. Okay, our topic today is backcountry flying, and hopefully, we'll give you some tips and tricks to do it a little safer. And talk about some of the fun and that that about the backcountry flying, and it's it's not so much the actual flying. I mean, generally flying is fun enough, but backcountry flying to me, it's it's a culture, um, and as much or more than anything else. Yeah, it is. There, it's a whole other subculture. I've taken people uh, to backcountry fly-ins, and they said, "I didn't know this even existed." There is you. Your type of people that just get together like a tribe, and right out out in the middle of nowhere. And I did a uh, a backcountry trip into a airstrip up in up in Idaho, and uh, I I was shocked. And flying there was fun, but once you're on the ground and you're there at the fly-in, then then it's the barbecues. It's getting it's looking at everybody's things they've done to their aircraft, their modifications. It's it's telling stories and learning from each other's mistakes and experiences, and and I, it's just one of the funnest things you could ever do. Yeah, I, I love going to, to fly-ins because it's um, you really can learn from a lot of other people and listen to them talk and tell about things they've done and, and how they approach different airstrips, uh, future airstrips you'd like to go into, or how you've approached them, and they say, well, I approach it this way, but it works. Some airstrips... You know, they wouldn't try any other but one approach. There's one way to approach Yeah, one, one, one way. So. I, I flew into a backcountry strip up in Colorado. There's one way in, and they tell you really clear, you're not going to outclimb the hills. Mm-hmm. You will not turn around. You will not one see way the strip. runway until short final on the last turn, and you better have touched the trees with your tire yep. on that last turn, or you're going to be too high to drop in. Exactly. And it's it's pretty. I, Erica's got big, huge eyes over there. Yeah. You know, I, I, I love that kind of detail and instruction, but definitely well, to touch the trees with the tires. Well, and I don't think literally that's the yeah. goal, but the point the point has to be made. 
Some people, they think they're close to... I've done a lot of backcountry flying, and, and while, you know, we, we live here in the Utah Rocky Mountains, and we had all the Idaho backcountry strips are so close to as well, and you get pilots that think they're close to the trees, and not they're e- not. Not even So close. you can't tell them when they're going into this airstrip or that strip, you can't say, hey, you've got to be really close to the trees, because they'll be like 200 uh-huh. feet above the trees, thinking they're... Th- and then there's, of course, a mountain on the right and a mountain on the left, or cliffs... And they think they're so low and slow and close. And the reality is they're so stinking high they're going to yeah, get themselves killed. Exactly. It, it, I think and it's I all relative. Close. It's relative what close is on the wing and what close is on the tires. So when you say touch touch the tires, that means you are at hey, literally. You don't You don't need yeah. to literally touch them, but that's where you need to be if you want <laughs> right. to get stopped. Now, I had a YouTube video I put up. Um, and, and if you want to see my YouTube videos, with, I've put a few little race airplane videos up there. And I've got some backcountry flying. My wife's uh, 801 that we built for her is a turbocharged Zenith 801 four-seat uh, bush plane. And I put some videos up. And one of the videos I put up got some controversy. And really? I want to get everybody's feedback on this one because I, it, I was a little shocked and disappointed. So the video, uh, if you did a search on YouTube, uh, search 801 Pilot, and uh, then look for the video I've got posted that's called 60 Second Pattern. And all the video is, is me getting off the ground at my local airport, immediate left turn, tight around and back on the ground to a full stop. So it's full stop pattern to full stop in 60 seconds to do that. You don't gain much altitude. You're turning pretty steep. Uh-huh. 60 seconds sounds like a long time, but when you watch the video, you're like, no, that's a pretty dang small type pattern. Now, the purpose of that is we were going to fly down into um, the airstrip right on the Green River that you drop down between the cliffs. Do you know which one I'm talking about, Wally? Mineral Canyon? That's it. Okay. Well, there's two. We were doing Mineral Canyon, and there's another one. But you're dropping in, and I'll remember it as soon as the show's over. But you're down in between the cliffs above the Green River. Uh-huh. And the cliffs are 500 to 1,000 feet above you on each side. You come around the corner low and slow. And then finally the runway reveals itself to you off to the left. And you drop in. Now this one you can um, get back out of that area and make a circle and make another round. If you have to do a go around, there's tamarack uh, bushes at the end of the runway. And if you have to do a go-round, you know, do a go-round, but your go-round has to be low and tight or you're going to hit the mountain and mm-hmm. uh, hit the cliff and drop into the river. Uh, probably unsurvivable unless it is a 60-second or tighter pattern. So I was practicing because yeah. a group of us was going to go fly in there. We're going to land there. We're going to have lunch. We're going to hang out. It, we're going to shoot some videos. It's a fun time. It's safe. It's legal. But to be safe... I started practicing at my local airport in a safe environment where there's no cliffs, there's no updrafts or downdrafts, and I could just practice again and again and again a really tight pattern, hitting the spot I wanted every time, getting stopped by where I wanted every time. And I posted the video, and a guy gets on and says, they should call this video 60 seconds to a dead pilot. Pilots like you doing unnecessary maneuvers like this is what kills people and gives aviators a bad name. And, and I mean, I'm paraphrasing because I haven't read his comment for probably three years. So I'm just thinking about it now as we bring up this subject. And every effort I had 
was to do this in a safe environment. I, I wanted to just reach through the computer and choke this guy and go, oh, so you're the really safe pilot that never practices tight pattern maneuvers. You probably live somewhere in the flatlands where you actually never fly into a box canyon, never fly back country. Don't understand that if you think you're going to go into that strip unpracticed and unpolished, and Mark, you're the one that's going to die. And he's not flying a Zenith 801 with a 180-horse twin turbo and that can do that. I've flown that airplane. I've only got an hour in it, but, man, I was but it, amazed it, it at what that airplane can do. It doesn't and it, stall. It, I mean, it's a perfectly airspeed. safe thing to do with that airplane. Right. Yeah, you wouldn't want to, I wouldn't want to do that in a little Piper or probably I, spin I, it right into the ground and I kill couldn't yourself. do it in my 182. And so, but that was the point is, is when, when is it that practice makes perfect becomes... Um, a dangerous activity. And where do you, how do you know that line? Because there's that part of me also, okay, I want to make sure that, that I am not pushing it to the limit. And, and in no way did I feel like I was, ever. That video was so benign to me. It was just fun to say, oh yeah, I can get around in 60 seconds. I was doing it over and over again. A friend of mine says, hey, you're getting those done in 60 seconds every takeoff and landing, full stop. I'm like, wow, let's film it. That'll be fun. I'll put it on YouTube. And then you get ridiculed for it. And you're going, look, I, I'm so nowhere near a stall, nowhere near anything. <laughs> Yeah, that, I mean, that guy just doesn't know what he's talking about. He's probably from the flatland and never flown a Zenith. And if he's flown a Zenith, he'd understand how easy it is to do it. Well, I wouldn't say easy, but very doable. Doable and safely. Yes. Well, and, and where you put that limit is a matter of the pilot skills and the, the aircraft's the capabilities. And the aircraft's capabilities. And until you are intimately familiar with all three of those, then to pass judgment is uh, just putting on blinders and well i'll just say there was a a good friend of mine and and mark knows him uh who's a, a really great backcountry pilot and you know i was when i was first getting into it i was asking him kind of hoping he would take me up and show me some stuff and but he didn't he said just take your plane up and learn what your plane can do in every situation Mm -hmm. And take it up to altitude in case you get into a spin or whatever. But learn that airplane like it's an extension of your body. And then take those basic rules of, of flying in the backcountry and take your airplane like an extension of your body. And you can go where you want and you'll know what your limitations are and what they aren't. And you know, so the, that's very the, important. And I think that's a really good point. <clears throat> you know, the, the bringing it up to altitude and, and trying it. You know, I, I, uh, in my Zenith, after we finished building that, we ran it through all the regular safety tests and all the 40 hours and checked all the boxes and power on and power off and all the different stalls. But, but we took it farther you mean, than what... You mean there's a stall? There, on your, there, there on is your not a stall on the Zenith. <laughs> I didn't it actually never let go of the wing. <laughs> it, it just shakes. But we um, put it into a 45-degree bank, and we went up to a safe altitude, put it in a 45-degree bank, and for aerobatic maneuvers, you'll go into a steep bank, maybe even a 60-degree bank, and just pull and pull and pull and get an accelerated stall. You just go real fast and pull until you pull enough Gs that it lets go. Um, in the 801, it was different because it's for backcountry flying. And what usually kills pilots in the backcountry is the base to final turn, where all of a sudden they're rounding out, realizing they don't have the time they normally do. And then so they tighten up their turn and spin it in. 
And so to avoid that, went up and did 45 degree steep turns and slowed down, slowed down, slowed down, maintaining altitude at 45 degrees until it started to come out of the sky. And sometimes a plane will drop a wing and, and you know, roll you over. And, and it, in this particular case with that airplane, it, it wouldn't drop a wing. It just kind of started sliding out of the sky. It couldn't get it stalled. So we put it <laughs> to 60 degrees, slow down, slow down, slow down, trying to get it stalled. And you learn what your plane can do and can't do. And I love the, my favorite quote in aviation when it comes to uh, just all around good terminology for us backcountry pilots. No matter how good a pilot is, you can't make a plane do what the plane can't do. And no matter how good the airplane is, the airplane can't make the pilot do what the pilot can't do. Right. And this is really the point of backcountry flying. If you're going to do it, um, know what your plane can do and what it can't do. And know what you can do and what you can't do. And you better know recently. It's not, I did this last year and now I'm going to go fly into no turnaround ranch um, in my 172, yeah. you know, you're going to, you have to know, and you have to know for yourself. Mm -hmm. Exactly. I totally agree. It's, um, you know, flying is like anything. It's kind of a perishable skill. And uh, I even feel it if I haven't been up, like, you know, there's times whenever I'm getting my airplane fixed, you know, and you haven't been up for a month, month and a half. And you just, you don't feel like you usually would feel when you're getting in after spending you know, 20 hours in the backcountry, you know, flying four and five times a week, you know. Well, and, and it's a really good point. And there's also that the, the problem you get, though, is you spend 20 hours in the backcountry with your friends hopping in and out of every, you know, fun airstrip and remote airstrip you can get. And your confidence level goes way up and you forget six months later when you're going to go back into the backcountry again that you're not as good as you were at the end of that last trip. Yep. You're somewhere significantly less good. Right, right. So you move into it a little slower again. Now, Wally, you had a um, backcountry uh, trip recently that um, had, a, had some fatalities. Uh, without giving any details and protecting you know, the, the innocent or guilty and whatever, um, what, what did you see happen, and, and what could be done to prevent that kind of an accident in the future? Well, it's one of those accidents where there's a midair collision on final, uh, a low wing descending onto a high wing on final. Uh, and, so this, that, this was, and this was in, a, uh, I mean, in the mountains in between the trees. Right, and, right. and that, that can happen at a regular airstrip just like a backcountry strip. But, you know, this was up in Idaho, and... Um, I'm sure people could look this up if they wanted to, and and um, it, this particular strip, it, you know, <clears throat> is easy for say even RVs to get into. Mm -hmm. uh, they just not motorhomes, not motorhomes. The van's <laughs> RV <aircraft>. Oh, RV <laughs> experimental. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> sorry. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, and so yeah, it was. It, the situation was is there was a lot. Of airplanes in the air. It was Friday morning. I know better too than to come in on a Friday morning when there's a ton of people in the air coming in at the same time, but I did. And uh, I happened to witness the crash. I was a beam the numbers at the far end on downwind. And it was really surreal watching it happen. But uh, at first I thought it was only one airplane. I saw uh, wings cartwheeling, dirt kicking up and turf kicking up on the ground. And 
I had three airplanes in front of me still uh, going to land in front of me. And we were 400 yards apart. This is the tightest, and we're down in a canyon. And so this is the tightest I've ever been for even a regular airstrip. No, and there's, there's no, I'm just going to turn right and leave the pattern. No. I mean, no. you're down in there. You're not out climbing the hill. You're not no. getting out of the pattern. We're about halfway deep into the canyon. And so the only way you're going to get out is by accelerating and climbing out if you wanted to do that. Yeah. And it's going to take time. You can't just turn out. You just well, got to go above everybody yeah. as opposed to... Or just wait, you know, till you're uh, at turning base and you just keep going downwind and get out that way. So, um, no, did you want me to explain what no, I saw? No, I don't or, know okay. that we need to get into any of the, any of the details. Okay. I just wondered, in, in this case, it, it is the, the image we all, I think, as you, you mentioned, that low wing, high wing, you picture that image that's floating around the internet of one airplane landed on top of another airplane where they all survived, and it's... It's you know the low wings on top, the high wings underneath, and and uh, they're 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 doing the the two airplane tango, mm-hmm. and in that mm-hmm. case they all survive. But um, I don't know that there's a lesson to be learned there, except that know what where your blind spots are, and it's easy as a pilot to ignore our blind spots because there's nothing to see there anyway. We don't scan that part of the sky because there's something in the way. And in the backcountry, and, and, and maybe at any time, but you really should be rocking your wings a bit and get a better look. You know, mm-hmm. get some clearing view somehow of what's beneath you or, or be hyper aware of your blind spots, what's coming in or going out of it. I think a lot of the problem with this particular accident was uh, there were so many people on the radio at the same time that it defeated the purpose of safety. It's like people were stepping on each other. Oh, people that's a great were, point. People yeah. were making so many calls, so many airplanes out there trying to make calls. I made two and just got off the radio. I made a five mile, I'm five miles south, you know, at pattern altitude, coming down the canyon, um, inbound for landing. And then I made, when I got in the pattern and that was it. But I don't even know if anybody heard me because, you know, every time I went to hit the push to talk, Somebody else would jump on. And now, were I, they were they being proficient as pilots, or were their pilots taking their time and and giving more information than was needed? I think there were there were some that were taking a little longer than they should have. I think, but most everybody was trying to be quick and off the radio. And I think you see that more with experienced backcountry pilots in that situation where they're really quick and off the radio than people. Um, just playing with it, you know, yeah. experimenting with backcountry, never been the backcountry, and all they know is is uh, here's the backcountry, and it's just like any other runway. And it's not. And it's not. And do you think also yeah. in that scenario you've got a case of tunnel vision because you know the stress is a little higher. You're flying into backcountry. You know that you have a lot of traffic in the area, so you start to get a little more stressed about your approach, especially if somebody's on the edge of their skills. And they start to forget about the clearance issue because they're thinking about all this other stuff. They're so worried about the trees they're trying to mm-hmm. buzz low enough oh, so yeah. they can get yeah, stopped. About and... All these other things that everyone's <clears throat> told them about that approach, about that airport. I need to do this. I need to be at this point. At, you know. There well, is, well, I was just, sorry. No, I, no, no. I, I, there's I, all kinds of skill levels out there mm-hmm. from the new guy all the way to 
the crusty old bush pilot, you know, and, and uh, ag plane drivers, you know. Ag plane drivers are the worst. <laughs> Send your hate mail to Mark's fake email at aimhigh.com. Uh, I, I swear, they don't make radio calls. The no. ag guys, they never no. make radio no, I used to think it was a unique to Utah thing. It's no, not. No, ag no. pilots are the worst. They just don't call out. I had one in Florida that I was friends with, and, and uh, but he would fly you know, ag on the side and then had his own plane. But that guy would just slide in low on, you know, base to final underneath whoever. I'm like, Seriously? Yeah, please, people, talk to us. Yeah, just something. Don't just show up. I had one. I had one out east that was a that I I was coming in on final. I got switched off from an IFR approach, and and uh, it was a non-towered airport, which is where these guys are usually playing and out of. And I, I I call on final, and I call a you know a short final, and this plane slips right in, and I'm in a. I at the time I was flying my Meridian. And I had to do a, a go-around when I was about, oh, 50 feet up, I'm doing a go-around because he entered the pattern and entered and touched down at midfield, which is awesome <laughs> piloting. Uh-huh. But um, I was you like mean- <laughs> almost in my flare when you entered the pattern in front of me to touch down. And there was no way I was going to get stopped in time. And you need uh, the whole runway. <laughs> yeah. And I need the runway. And so I executed a go-around and I... I stepped safely enough to the left, but not so far that he wouldn't know when I went by, if you know yes. what I'm saying. Yes, that was uh, awesome. So I executed my go-around safely to the left, making him very aware <laughs> that he was a punk, and I was upset. And so when I pulled up and landed, he was doing a hot load, and, and uh, I just kind of walked up to him, and he pulled one ear of his, his ear muff off. There was no wires on it. <laughs> not even a wire hooked up to his earmuffs. They're just to make it quiet in the cockpit. And he pulled one ear off and he says, uh, I cut you off, didn't I? I said, yeah, I made a bunch of radio calls. Yeah, I don't, I'm not on the radios, really. You know, it's not required to be on the radios. And I just looked at him like, really? You're gonna? I, I know it's not required. And he just looks at me and goes, you know what? I got I to gotta get on the radios. I, you're the second person today I've cut off in the pattern. <laughs> oh, Today. Today. So those of you pilots, you you you, uh, you ag pilots that do talk on the radio and wear your headphones, uh, we love you. We, we appreciate hey, you to death. I I've had to actually, I didn't cut them off because you know some of the flight instructors of the day today take their students on these uh, jetliner. Approaches. Oh, there's the patterns. We've talked about you know, this. You're logging cross country. Yeah, exactly. And they're on very long. They're on. They're on extremely long final, calling it. And I just chopped and dropped right down, landed and got out of the way. And so did another friend of mine, who was flying a a backcountry plane. And we both had chopped and dropped off the runway. And he still had a minute before he got before he touched wheels. No, and that's and and that's you know, different, so. and that's understandable, yeah. and, and especially at our at our airport, we had a episode, one of our first episodes. If you want to look it up, it was, it was one of our more popular ones as well. But it was pilots' patterns and pet peeves, <laughs> and we talked about this this ridiculous airline pattern in a katana. Yeah. You're like, you know what? I know the katana has an amazing glide ratio. But you're not going to make it. <laughs> you're yeah. so big. Yeah, yeah so you're long. hanging on the prop instead of instead of 
pitching for speed. Yeah. You're throttling for speed, and, and you're not really learning how to no. do a real a real final. Approach. I really yeah. wish I'd been in that episode with you, because when I saw the title of it, I'm like, oh, I so could have contributed to we, that. We may need we to, to do another pilot pattern. Just so we can get Erica's pet peeves in here. We need Erica's your pet, pet peeves. peeves. Absolutely. <laughs> okay, to leave it on a fun note, um, your funnest backcountry airstrip you've ever been into, Wally? Um, I would have to say Mexican Mountain here in Utah. It's beautiful. Yeah. I mean, it is, I think, the most perfect backcountry strip. When you think about everything involved with that strip, you've got a, a semi-tight canyon. It's not super tight, but it's tight enough. You can do a 180 in it. Most airplanes can do a 180. Yep. And uh, you're you're in uh, you're you're in a kind of national park kind of a setting. Yeah, I the mean, only way you can get in there. Cliffs everywhere. The only way to get to this spot on the planet is airplane. You airplane can't take a jeep or, or horseback or horseback. Yeah, yeah, and the, and which is really cool. And I've taken my son in there camping. You know, airplane camping. It's they've a, got Indian ruins there. They've or got Indian. Uh, what are they called? Petroglyphs. petroglyphs. There's mm-hmm. petroglyphs. Yeah. Sounds amazing. And there's an old cowboy grave. Uh, that I found that says, Here lies Jebediah Curry, 1874 to 1911. It was oh, carved. You showed me some pictures. Yeah, of and that. It's, on, it's on my. I've got three, um, three YouTube videos up. If you look, Mustang Gun, all one word with two G's, you'll see I, I have three videos up. And the one that says uh, uh, Mexican Mountain at Sunset, you'll, you'll see the, uh, the, the gravestone. And it's pretty cool. And some of the petroglyphs I threw in there too. We had a, uh, a listener chime in and asked, uh, do you carry extra fuel with you ever because you can't refuel anything? Never. Just plan accordingly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a great question for the backcountry. And, and I would have to answer similar to Wally with one caveat. If, if I'm going into the backcountry with a friend that doesn't have enough fuel, I, I had a, a friend that has an old J3 Cub that just doesn't carry much fuel. The only tank he's got the... That, uh, I mean, I, I don't remember how much he has total, but it seems like less than 20 gallons. And my 801 would carry 60 gallons. And so I had a system set up on that where I could drain any one of the tanks. And so we'd fly into the back country, get way back in there. And then I would drain one of my tanks into a five-gallon gas can. And at five gallons at a time, I'd refill him so he could come back out. But with that exception aside, and know we were going into a place where I could go in heavy, I, I take what I need. I mean, the, the, you take what you need and the excess for the wind and the excess for the playing around. But if you figure out all your safety margins and it's five gallons from full, I, I, I don't go, oh, it's only five gallons. I'll just put in the extra five gallons. I leave the five mm-hmm. gallons at home because you're right. going into dirt and grass strips. And, and you're that every, much lighter. Every yeah. ounce counts. I mean, it's mm-hmm. so real. At, at a runway, the, the idea of weight is it it's we know it's real and we accept it we understand it but it's not critical in the backcountry man every ounce seriously mm-hmm. holy crap when you're when you're trying to clear a treetop and you're full throttle and you're at vx and you're doing everything you can if you could dump a five gallon gas can in that second you would dump it and and anyone that bothered you during the trip you know, yeah. you're really I'm wanting to be campers. like any, any unfriendly campers. You leave it behind. Well, I, I, I would have to say I would have to totally agree with that. And uh, there's a couple little things that we could that I'd like to tell people 
when they decide to do backcountry and, and they're extremely important thing is, is weight. Always look at your weight, just, just as in fuel and everything else. Um, and, t- and test fly your airplane at that weight, by the yeah. way. If you, if you haven't gone up and done stalls in your airplane with your camping gear, uh, you might want to try that. Make sure you're in CG and go up and practice to stall, practice some steep turns mm-hmm. with your gear in the plane. Believe me, it's different than the two people on the back seat. Good yeah. Uh, well, so... Anyways, um, I'm thinking um, as far as when you go in the backcountry, and most of the time we go in the backcountry, summertime, that's when a lot of the, all the fly-ins are, summertime, and everybody's having fun. So never fly in the summertime. Try to do backcountry after 10 o'clock, rule of thumb, 10 o'clock in the morning, get in, especially... You know, depending You're on the plane, you fly get in early. Don't get in fly early after ten o'clock when it's cool and, and density altitude is not. Yeah, calm winds. Winds are a real kicker. I, I don't fly uh, backcountry in the mountains if the wind is over fifteen to you know or higher. Usually, I'll go. You know, I'll come in and try to land at a bigger backcountry strip. But if they're really tight. And um, they're updrafts and downdrafts, you know. I'm not going to chance it. Usually 15, 18 uh, knots is, well, is and- my limit and know your limits. Um, and so wind is a kicker in the morning. No winds. Winds are really calm usually. And your density altitude starts going up. Uh, after 10, it starts getting hotter. And then after, you know, then shut it down. Have a good time where you are. And then uh, about... You know, right before sunrise or sunset, then go up and fly out if you need to fly out. Uh, the other thing is, is never turn, always turn towards a descending terrain. Never tor- turn towards a terrain that's going up or ascending terrain. Always turn towards the downhill and never go past the point of no return, which means don't go into a canyon that you can't turn out of. Yeah, unless you know there's a clear runway to stick it down on, and right. that's your goal. And then, right. and then be committed. Uh, you know, know that if it says there's no climbing out the other side, one way strip. It's a one way strip, and and there isn't a way to get out of it. Don't think you're going to. I mean, take out the elk. Don't try to go around. I mean, yeah. I would rather hit an elk at forty miles an hour, fifty miles an hour, than mm-hmm. execute a go round in a canyon that is not executable because the elk probably won't kill you he might get out of your way it might only take out your wing or do the most perfect landing you you do over asphalt over the river you know right take the river as a runway you know you're gonna you know you're gonna ball the airplane up but you can walk away from the land i think that that may be one of the best takeaways except i don't want to miss the safety the importance of safety equipment um but in the back country you have to go back there flying committed to your landing um, and committed to landing when you don't want to. I mean, if it goes bad, you have to be committed to putting mm-hmm. it in the trees intentionally instead of stalling it in a feet, turn in a turn 20 yeah. feet above the trees. That's I mean, what you, pe- you have to be committed to, mm-hmm. to and really stay in control. and be in control when you take it in. That's the whole if you point. Have to. That's the whole point of, of landing it on the river or balling up in the trees is you're still in control of the plane, even though you're going to hit those things instead of, okay, I can't make it. 
throttle to the firewall. I'm trying to trying pull to out. Climb, and, then, and, and then I try to turn in a space that it's too small, and you stall it out, and you spin into the ground, and you die. And now you're guaranteed dead, as yeah. opposed to mm-hmm. cuts, bruises, maybe broken legs, or exactly. possibly survival. That probably will be as long as we can go. This is getting to be a longer podcast than normal, but I want to bring up the one last thing. If you're going into the backcountry, just because you all, you're all thinking it, but I have to say it, so have a clear conscience. Take your safety equipment. Take your survival gear. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're going up into Alaska, it's actually a law it's that you take a gun and the appropriate ammo for the gun if you're flying up there. Mm-hmm. Um, so make sure you take everything you need to survive in the event that you're going to crash. And then uh, a shout-out to, to uh, Spot for their locators and their spot locators are incredible. You could be anywhere. You carry one. I carry one as well. Yeah. And uh, you can hit the one button on spot and send your GPS coordinate. And, and, and being a, a search and rescue guy myself, when we have a GPS coordinate to go to, we're going to be on top of you so fast you'll be shocked and amazed. If we don't have a GPS coordinate, you'll be shocked and amazed at how incompetent you think we are. You will think we're the most incompetent bunch of clowns, and, and we're not. It's just a, it's a big world, and you're small people, and even an airplane gets swallowed up real quick in the mountains. So take, take some good safety equipment and a, and a GPS locator that transmits, if you would. Let's go on to the next segment. Anybody else have anything else you want to throw in? I will remind our listeners that we did an episode a while back on, on fly-in camping, there's a few packing tips and things like that. Oh, there. wonderful. So, good so that's point. that's a good partner episode to go back and find. If you've listened to this one and enjoy it, go find that episode and listen to it, too. Whole whole batch of different information there. Wonderful. Okay, on to our NTSB report. This just in from the National Transportation Safety Board. October 6, 2011, in Agana, Guam, a Cessna 172 found trouble on the taxiways. Neither the pilot or co-pilot were injured. The pilot said that he returned to the airport and after landing was cleared by an air traffic controller to exit the runway and to proceed to parking, which would require his airplane to cross behind a heavy jet airplane. The pilot reported that he was aware that the heavy jet airplane had been on the taxiway all morning during periodic engine run-ups. The pilot said that he thought about refusing the clearance, but did not. While taxiing across the taxiway behind the jet, a jet blast struck the airplane. The airplane initially slid sideways, then the jet blast picked the left wing up and the right wing struck the ground, which substantially caused damage to the right wing. The National Transportation Safety Board determines the probable cause of this accident to be the pilot's failure to avoid the jet blast while taxiing and the ground air traffic controller's failure to advise the pilot of the hazard. Man, you know, you've seen the videos on, on the internet of airplanes or cars getting blown over by a jet blast. I, at what point do you decide to not say something? You know, it, this, this kind of, because I, I look at this and go, what pilot would taxi behind that if he was aware that they were doing engine run-ups and he actually, he actually thought, thought that he, maybe I don't want to go behind this while he's doing an engine run-up and... And it brings me to a deeper question, and then I want you guys your your input on this as well. But my deeper question is this: At what point do pilots fear the controllers so much that they don't even speak up? I mean, I I'm I'm sorry. I have I have all the respect in the world for air traffic controllers and ground handlers and the tower guys 
and they're doing their job is to try to make us safe. That does not mean they're perfect. They are people and they're imperfect. And there's nothing wrong with saying, no, I'm not comfortable with that. Am I going to get blown by a jet blast? Well, you know, in, in three words, pilot in command. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you need, you need, it, The buck stops with that pilot. You can pass some of the blame off to the controller, but the reality is it is absolutely was his fault. Line, your butt's in the seat. You must take responsibility for your own safety. And if that means speaking up to air traffic control, and you do because you are pilot in command. You know, and the only thing the air traffic control is really going to do is uh, give you a better explanation of why they're asking or why it's safe. Or they might, in this case, say, oh, yeah, actually, good point, and get on the radio to the guys in the road. Are you guys doing a full thrust run-up right now, or can I have attack an aircraft clear? You know, and it, that's all it's got to take. But, but the fear of saying no to a controller, um, I think, has gotten a little out of hand. People are afraid. I, I know uh, my wife's not here to defend herself, but she wouldn't. She would just nod her head and go, yep, yep, I'm one of those. She is afraid to say no to a controller or question or ask for reclarification. I say, look, Susie, you're a fantastic stick and rudder. Your only problem is you're so afraid of getting in trouble, you're going to end up getting yourself killed. And this is kind of one of those scenarios where you're going, stop being afraid of getting in trouble. Recognize the person on the other side of the radio is just trying to help you. And for crying out loud... They can make mistakes. Don't make the mistake of listening to them um, and just blindly following. If you have a concern, bring it up. Well, also, pilots need to remember that as pilot in command, your sole concern is is your plane, whereas the air traffic controller is handling multiple aircraft, maybe 10, maybe a dozen airplanes out there. They're trying to keep an eye on every scenario. They're doing, like you said, they're doing the best they can. But... They don't have the singular responsibility the way the pilot in command does of the safety of that one flight. Oh, and so that's a good point, too. Uh, and only you know your airplane. I mean, I might not worry so much taxing behind a big aircraft um, if I'm in, uh, say, the, the Eclipse jet, which has a very high wing loading. If I'm full of people and, and got full fuel, I, I, I might not be as nearly concerned taxing behind a, a, an aircraft that is motoring in this case you're doing engine run-ups but you know a big jet might be just motoring down the taxiway and you're clearing and you know they're under power but just enough power to keep them moving down the taxiway in the eclipse i would have no thought at all about heading on behind them the meridian wouldn't either my wife's uh, zenith 801 no <laughs> way in the yeah. world because yeah. at taxiing thrust it'll take her plane and send it all the way down the other end of the ramp yeah yeah and, you know, like we talked about, as far as you being PIC, what if you're in a situation where you have to land someplace, emergency landing? Um, it's called runway spelled many different words. Like well, that's, that's right. <laughs> many runway can ways. be spelled a lot of different ways. Sometimes it's spelled R-O-A-D. Right. Sometimes it's spelled F-I-E-L-D. Uh-huh, exactly. And that's just the runways. You don't need to be intimidated by landing on, you know, land on anything. It's just another way to spell runway. Yes. <laughs> exactly. That's just a good example of uh, your pilot in command. You know, you do what you need to do. And if you're flying in the backcountry, the runway might be spelled R-I-V-E-R. <laughs> All right, ladies and gentlemen, I think that wraps up this podcast. Wally, thanks so much for joining us on the show. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. And uh, Erica, you're awesome as always. I'm oh, so lucky to have such a great co-host. 
Well, you've been taking care of the bloggers and the tweeters and the people reaching in with their comments and questions. I want to point out as we leave that you can uh, send email questions to us, or if you want us to tackle a subject on the program or have an idea or suggestion, please email Erica at aimhigh.com. That's E-R-I-K-A at aim high, and that's A-M-E, as in aviation made easy, aimhigh.com. Thanks, everyone, for joining the show, and we'll catch you next time. Tell wins. Thank you for listening to the Aim High Podcast. Remember to follow us on Twitter at Aim underscore high and like us on Facebook. And if you enjoyed this podcast, feel free to subscribe to us on iTunes. We know you have many choices when it comes to your podcast, and we thank you for choosing ours. When you're learning how to fly, aim high. Aviation made easy.